The reading tonight is from the Gospel according to John, the first chapter. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of the Lord. The word became flesh, flesh, really. The pre-existent, the divine, the holy God gets a body. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And that is such a weird thing, to have a faith that depends on a story about a God who is born into the world in a body, a placental mammal, actually, a higher vertebrate, fully human. That's the story that's in the Gospels. That's actually implanted in our creeds and our liturgies. It's tucked into our dogmas like a Molotov cocktail ready to explode and re-explode and deconstruct and reconstruct our notions of God. It's a little far-fetched seeming, maybe. Odd. And so beautiful in a messy kind of a way. And I hope that we'll keep getting struck and struck and struck again by the wildness and the oddness and the beauty of this strange thing at the center. God became flesh. I personally hardly ever get tired of thinking of the implications, the details of that. God incarnate. God the Almighty sucking at his mother's breast laying on her lap, unable even to hold his own head up so she cradles it in her hands. God incarnate at 13, finding that hair is growing out of his armpits. God being hungry and tired and needy, enzymes breaking down molecules so they can be absorbed by his intestines, neural pathways dictating how information travels through his nervous system, cellular respiration, gas, bacteria, a God who has an anal cavity. It seems like something that junior high boys would make up. It seems like some blasphemy, the crux of faith near profanity by some counts. If you speak honestly, it's details. God with meat on. God in the flesh comes eating and drinking, how wild. And they call him a glutton and a drunk. It's just interesting. The body of Christ has never been something that sat easily within the dominant narratives, within the proper understanding of what is sacred and holy, what is God. The incarnation has always caused a kind of a ruckus. It's in the stories in the Bible, and then it keeps happening. Jesus becomes the center of this faith, but somehow it still doesn't sit easily. 
keeps throwing people off. Fully human? You're kidding me. Flesh? The church fathers, the founders of the doctrine, had a hard time with it. They argued a lot about the whole fully human clause. Marcion thought the incarnation was definitely beneath God's dignity. Tertullian argues for it, and he wins, but it clearly kind of disgusts him. Start with the birth itself, he says, and I'm quoting him here. The birth itself, an aversion, the filth within the womb of the bodily fluid and blood, the loathsome curdled lump of flesh, which has to be fed for nine months of this same muck, the womb. I love to think of the ancient church fathers, a little bit prudish, a little bit misogynist, having to deal with the physical, with the mother's womb, agreeing eventually somehow that however disturbing it might be to them, on whatever level, the body stays. Fully human, yes. And it did and it will always, I hope, mess with our divisions of the sacred and the profane, our neat categories, our dualisms, our rationalism. I like that it has always caused some sort of ruckus among the fathers of the doctrines and the protectors of the sacred. Another thing I like about the whole word made flesh is that you can't really adequately talk about it. The word is only a part of it. It's not really an idea at all, the incarnate God. Or idea might be in the mix, but to say idea, it's like the smallest fraction of the truth of it. The word became flesh. The body and the blood, it's God mixed up in the molecules of life. It's God outrageously present beyond what we can think or speak. God present in some way that is beyond our rational capacity to sort it out. In the bones and in the blood. I love it. God reveals God's self most fully. The Christian church has usually profess, sometimes in spite of itself, not as a rational system, not as an unchanging principle or an overarching idea, not as some magisterial, some almighty, powerful, unflappable deity, but as a human, human living, vulnerable being with fragile bones in his feet, with skin that can be punctured and hair that will fall out, flesh that will die, actually. God reveals God's self in this surprisingly and strangely vulnerable and fragile way. That's Christmas. It seems like something that has the potential to subvert almost every notion about who God is and what God does, every notion of power and purity. Power and purity in the body and the blood don't sit that easily together. Flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is admittedly a little bit hard to deal with sometimes. I don't know if you have the opportunity to contemplate roadkill much, but out in the country where I live, the opportunities are endless all year long, and if you run the same path day after day, you can actually watch this surprisingly swift process of decay. 
From the sort of gushy and bloody thing to dried up skin and bones, from wet to dry, from blood to bones. One day the deer is fairly intact, and the next day apparently some dog has dragged its head off. It's no wonder sometimes we might prefer our God not incarnate, not flesh and blood. The flesh seems so hopeless sometimes. It gets old and it wrinkles and it dies and it smells. It dies. It's mostly that. I think you might only have to encounter roadkill once or twice before you begin to develop Gnostic tendencies. Release that spirit, man, from the gore on the road. We want something, some spirituality, some religion that has nothing to do with that flesh that dies. We want some disembodied something, please. There are Gnostic creation myths that tell of an absolute God who is untainted by any sort of association with material reality. A God who is pure truth and pure beauty, maybe remote and unknowable, but pure spirit consummate nobility. And then the Gnostic myths go, there's this junior sort of god, a lesser god, the Demiurge, who was descended in some way from that absolute god, supreme being. And this junior god is not so great, really, according to the Gnostic mythology. The junior god is arrogant and antagonistic to the supreme being, ignorant, evil, and it's this not-so-good junior god that created the world. And often it's said with some malevolent, evil intention of trapping aspects of the divine in materiality. The junior God created the world, and it was not good. It was more of a dreadful material limitation. And in these myths, the plight of humanity, some of who have a divine spark, is to find its way back to the absolute to escape this material prison and find its way back to this place of purity and light. This is actually quite a bit different than the story that most Christians claim as their founding narrative. The story we get with the Judeo-Christian tradition isn't actually a story about a God who helps us escape our materiality, but rather a God who created it, created us as bodily beings, dug God's hands in the dirt, so the story goes, said it was good, beautiful, loved it. God puts God's mouth over the nostrils of God's creation and breathes into them. God gave humanity life in the body. The word became flesh and dwelt among us is quite a bit different than a God that helps us escape somehow our bodies. But the desire to escape the body has had an enormous influence in the history of civilization, philosophy, and religion. This hasn't always been a plus for the well-being of the material world, for the life of the material world, to put it mildly. If the created, the material world is mostly something to escape, then why not? Strip mine, clear cut, pesticides, herbicides, kill the unenlightened species or the unenlightened humans, slavery, genocide. 
In our stories, God created the earth and loved it. God brought forth swarms of living creatures, swarming and creeping, fruitful and multiplying, created every living thing that moves and creeps into every green plant, fungi and membranes and bowels, bulbs and suckers and buds, sending out runners and tubers. God created it all. The word became flesh. Jesus born in a manger. I love these stories. You can look at them for a really long time and still not know exactly what they mean. But I think that it has more of the character of love than power. Jesus, our God, is in the womb nine months, is in the grave two days and two nights, so the story goes. What kind of God would do that, be born like that, Die like that. The body of Christ, the word made flesh, birth and death and resurrection, it's strange and it's weird and unscientific seeming and, I don't know, like the most revolutionary thing Christianity has going for it. It's ceaselessly scandalous and infinitely creative. We have a radically embodied faith. The stories that give life to hope in the Bible are not about us transcending the material world. They're about a God that gets all mixed up in it. A God who actually gets a body, feels, eats, cries, bleeds. God gives us life, breathed it into us at the moment of creation, and keeps feeding us life in our bodies. Lush, lavish, Eternal life, whatever that might mean. The incarnation witnesses to a God who lives in some unfathomable way with us and in us, not distant and not quite knowable either, and yet somehow intimate on our tongue and in our breath, like eating and drinking, 